Nehemiah chapter 5. And as we come to Nehemiah, we pick it up where Nehemiah has come out of his place of credibility there in modern Iran. And he has got the green light from the king of the Medo-Persian Empire to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to strengthen and fortify the walls of Jerusalem, to protect them from their avowed enemies who want to attack them and destroy them on all sides. He's not the first one to want to rebuild the wall. It's been over 100 years since they've gone back from their captivity in Babylon, the first wave under Zerubbabel. But every attempt to build the walls have been stopped. It just For over a century, the vision was there, but no one could execute it. But he's in a place of power and opportunity and favor from the, the powerful king of Medo-Persia. And so he's gone back with the blessing of Artaxerxes to do it. And he's got the plan. We saw in chapter 3 and 4, the people began to build the wall right where they lived. They got involved. They did it. They're going for it. And then we saw there in chapter 4, there was threats. So they were building with one hand, and they had the weapon in the other hand. And that's kind of the human experience sometimes. Well, certainly it is spiritually going forward with the Lord. And so from that background, we come forward tonight where the threats and the attacks uh, build speed and the challenges from within and the attacks without. So chapter 5 starts like this. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives, their Jewish brethren, against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we are sons, our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we borrowed money for the king's taxes on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought uh, into slavery, and it is not in our power uh, to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting ursary or interest from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? And then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this uh, usury or interest. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money, that's one percent, and the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. And even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. This chapter just kind of comes, it's sort of like out of nowhere to me. You know, the, the, the book has a flow. It's like I have a burden for the people. I pray for the people. God opens the door. I lead people back. We're going to start rebuilding. We're rebuilding. Hey, we've got enemies outside the wall. we got to stand against them, but we're going to keep going forward. And then suddenly this whole thing arises with finances and financial crisis within the people of covenant. It's, it just kind of really comes out of nowhere. It comes from left field. It mentions the famine. 
and it mentions hunger and food. And when you read commentaries about this from Bible expositors, you kind of get a, I even went to Vernon McGee today, you get a broad sweep of people and their opinions from different generations about the background to this story. But I've just tried to think of it and how we think in 2023 and things that we're going through, we've been through economic challenges, and surely we can relate just in general to a lot of this. Yeah. Because they've, they've got loans, they, they're hungry, they need food. Well, everyone, you know, if you don't eat for a day, you're hungry. Food's always pretty much top of the list right after air and water. Food's important, and we know it's a driving force, physical hunger. But it just says that we need to get food out of nowhere. All of a sudden, it's like they, there's contention within the people of God, the Jews, and they need food, and somebody's got food, and somebody doesn't have food, and to get the food, people are using, you know, their land. They're, they're leveraging their land. It's like um, they're getting like a line of credit against their land. They're giving up their land to get food, so they're sacrificing long-term financial wealth, if you will, for short-term financial need, food and hunger. So we see that one. We also see that <laughs> this is the worst case scenario, and it happens to people in America all the time. They're borrowing money to pay taxes. You know, like when you get a line of credit or you use your cash advance, if you don't ever do that, if you can avoid it. But, well, death and taxes are two sure bets, right? So Arctic Church is going to get his taxes. And they're overextended. So now they're borrowing private loans to pay taxes. That's the worst of the loan possible. The best loan possible is to loan someone money who has more money than you're loaning them, and they prove they can make money. That's a good return on your investment. The banks call that a good loan. But a bad loan is loan someone money who's hungry for food and doesn't have money for food because they, they, they're upside down, if you will. Like the banks would never loan you money, but your family members might. So that's the worst-case scenario there. And then to actually have to borrow money with interest to pay your taxes to a Gentile king from your own Jewish brethren. Or the worst of it all is that your teenage kids are a labor force and you've leveraged your land, you've borrowed from Uncle Ernie to pay the taxes and you're still hungry, so now your kids are gonna go work for Del Taco for free because you couldn't manage your affairs or something out of your control happened that caused a famine. Now, it's not the point of main application but in my years of reading good books by smart people from like John Wooden, the basketball coach at UCLA, to Dave Ramsey and everybody in between, they'll tell you, you got to always prepare for the bad day financially. That's why they always tell you, you tithe and you save 10%. And I promise anyone here, if you tithe and you save 10%, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you'll be ready for the, the bad day. That's hard to do. People are like, Joe, you know how hard it is to save 10% after tithing? And I would say, yes, I do. I do. I live in Orange County, too. 95% of people spend however much money they make every month. They get a raise, they just spend more money. You need to be the 5% that figures out how to tithe with faith and just save 10%. It's never changed. The, the financial economic system, how it works, it, it never changes. If, if you can save 10% every month, you'll... It's just basic math. It's all there to figure out. You can, Dave Ramsey, or richest man in Babylon, just, it's common sense economics. If you can save 10%, you're ready for this day. It's such a helpless feeling. You know, there can be times when you have financial hardships, and it's such a helpless feeling. But it doesn't feel as bad as you've been faithful to tithe and you've kept the Lord first with your money. 
The worst thing to do is be in a financial crisis because you live beyond your means and no one's going to lend you any money more and now your friends don't like you because you don't pay back your loans. And if that ever comes to you and has come to you or will come to you, be, be the person that actually goes back to people, apologizes, and begins to make effort to pay the debt back. That's honorable. That's what you want to do. This is the people of God doing a great work of God, and it's all stalled because they have to, the liens against their houses have cost them their property and their ability to, to produce the produce from the property. They're borrowing money from their relatives to pay taxes, and their children are working for someone else. It's a horrible situation financially. But what really, so that's just in general, we can all agree and say, yeah, that's a really bad situation to be avoided. So avoid it with common sense and biblical principles and faith, of course. But the worst part of this is, it's God's people doing it to each other. So this isn't just like, you know, America, free enterprise, capitalistic society, or even a socialist or communist society. This is God's people doing this to each other. So we don't really, you don't really see this in the church too much, so it's kind of hard to relate to this. Uh, church-wise, as a people of covenant. So we kind of lose a little bit because there's a people of covenant in the Old Testament, a nation, and their economic system. So it's, it's kind of hard to really get the exact parallel or equal rating. But the principle that people of covenant were taking advantage of other people of covenant in a hardship, we can understand that. And that is the context. And we see that Nehemiah is so upset. He's so upset. It says in verse 6, I became very angry. Because he just realizes what a, just, oh, what a, what a, what an evil thing this is. And what a distraction it is for the very reason he's there and what they're doing. It's like they've, they've been able to withstand the assault from the outside, but now they're imploding within themselves. And Jesus said it best, a house divided against itself cannot stand nor a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And of course, we're told that the double-minded man cannot stand because they're unstable in all their ways. If you're divided within as a person, you won't stand. If your house is divided, you won't stand. And if your nation's divided, you'll have a civil war. You won't stand. It just expands outward. And so here are the people of covenant, and it's division within that's, Man, you just got everything under control from the outside threats. You got the people with the swords, the trumpets ready to go, and now you got this. And so he's very angry. But then we read something that inspires all of us profoundly tonight. After serious thought. What a phrase. After serious thought. How much, if you're 60 and you look back on your life and you look back on the worst things you ever did, couldn't you say if you had just applied after serious thought? That's why I'm so big in my 60s on responding and not reacting. Reacting always gets me in trouble because it's emotional, it's knee-jerk, but responding, just thinking it through, considering the matter. He was furious. But before he did anything, he gave it serious thought. The higher the stakes on any major decision, the better it is to really think it through. And the more emotional and raw you feel on that decision, even so, the even more important it is to get past raw emotion and think it through. Because fact is God, his person, his promises, his character. Faith is in God, his person, his character, and his promises. And feelings comes after that. 
And it always goes bad when feelings usurp faith, because then you're pushing the panic mode, or even usurp facts, the facts of God. So you just completely unravel. So it's really important to slow it down and say, hey, let's, let's, get, let's, let's, let's just think this through. And so he did. And when we think about, okay, after serious thought, Joey, what do you think serious thought looks like for us, the Church of Jesus Christ in 2023? Like, well, it's still in your mind, making your mind be still. Because all minds are always busy, but I just think probably if you get, to, when you get to eternity, I think people in Orange County and Southern California, their minds are probably a little busier than most people. It just, it's, it's just always spinning, right? Like just living here, the intensity it's just always, we need to, the Bible says to be still and know that he's the Lord. We need to still our minds, s- slow it down. We need to get a hold of our emotions. We need to identify our emotions and realize, like, I'm really upset. How valid is this? Is this me upset or is this the Holy Spirit grieved with me as well? And, and get a hold of your emotions. We need to read the word. We need to think about the word of God. We need to be still and meditate upon the scriptures as how they would apply to a certain situation. Drama with people at work, drama with people in the family, drama with finances. We need to slow it down. This is a serious situation with division and with the people of God. You got to slow it down and think of the scriptures. Oh, how good it is for people to dwell together in unity, as the psalmist said. And we need to consider things of the past that we can learn from. Like, okay, in the past, in a similar situation, God was faithful, or I totally felt mishandled this, and learn from that. And then we also need to consider what is the desired result that the Lord would want? Like, what would be the desired result to resolve this situation or go forward in this situation? What does equity and justice with the Lord look like in a given situation? What is the best possible results in a situation? And what are the options that most move us toward that? Now, that would apply in a lot of things with changing jobs financial investments, right, or just whatever, that would apply. But really, I have found that you can put things in three categories, this looks, or four. This looks like the best option. That stands out, obviously. This could be a second option. It could go that way. This third one seems far-fetched. But, you know, I can see it would go that way, and the fourth option is anything other than the first three. So in my mind, I always keep it simple. I never have more than four options. I have A, B, C, and D, and D is anything other than A and B, C, which seem most obvious. And... Like Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, more often than not, the best sense is common sense. More often than not, it is. Still, though, you got to give space for the Lord to say, we're going to do something really profound here. I actually do that with a lot of things, like even like the current events right now. I'm looking at Jerusalem Post, BBC, Fox, CNN. Well, the best case scenario would look like this. The worst case scenario would look like that. And like, I'm like, wow, like that, that really is very, and some of you think that way, like this, Pastor Jeremy and I used to, when we had challenges in the church, we'd say, well, this is the best case scenario, this is the worst case scenario. And they tell you to do that in business, face your worst case scenario and then come forward from it to disarm it and, 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 and diffuse it so you're not going to have your worst case scenario catch you off guard. If you can anticipate what it is, you can prepare for it and come forward from it. So Pastor Jeremy and I would be like, well, when we confront this situation, if it goes well, it'll look like this. If it goes bad, it could look like this. When you, when you give yourself serious thought, like Nehemiah did here, you're giving the Lord a chance to say, hey, look, 
Catch your breath. Think of what your options are and begin to formulate a plan to go forward. Because with the Lord, it's always forward, right? Always forward with the Lord. Forward, onward, and upward. So in a serious situation where you're furious and angry about things, there's still a plan to go forward. It's never quit. Quitting is never the option. It's always grow and go forward. So you're just looking for, sometimes we say this is the best option of a lot of bad options. But if it's still the best option of all the unfavorable options, it's still the best option going forward. That's just how life works sometimes. So he gave it serious thought, and then he, he didn't just go and lash out at everybody. He gave it serious thought, and then he lashed out at everybody. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't like random. He, oh, he's not just, he, no. It's very deliberate and intentional. This is wrong. You need to make it right. This is how we make it right. And I'm going to believe you, but you're, I'm going to hold you to a contract too. I'm going to hold you accountable to your words. So he had a plan of what needed to be done. He exhorted them to do it, and he had a plan to hold them accountable so they couldn't wiggle their way out of it. That's what happens when you slow things down and you're serious in your thoughts. You, you don't get pulled out, out of your lane. You know, it's like life can be like judo, pushing and pulling, right? You're always like, you've always got your feet underneath you. When you're, when you're with the Lord's guiding you and you're not reactive, but you respond, you're always like, okay, they're pushing, I'm pulling, right? It's like that. But some people just start going like this, and they're just reacting. The promises of God are not yes and no. They're yes and amen. So once we get the mind of the Lord, you're going to go forward with the Lord, and he's going he's to move those things around. That unresolvable Rubik's Cube of the situation, the dilemma that's brought great anger or grief or sorrow, slow it down. Give it serious thought. Give the Lord a chance to speak to you. Let the Word speak to you. Let the Spirit speak to you. Come up with a plan, the best plan possible, and take the next step forward. He's extremely successful. This is like a horrible situation. And they all, they all said, we'll make it right. And they did. So good for them. What a happy ending. Verse 14. Moreover, there was a time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 12th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years Neither I nor my brother ate the governor's provisions, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work of this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table there were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us, now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl was prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on this people. Verse 19 is prayer. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I've done for this people. So he resolved the dispute and the conflict within the people. They agreed to it. His leadership yet again proven. And then we see him in a place of power, a place of power where he can abuse that power. Oftentimes, you know, power presents opportunity for abuse. And more often than not, most human beings abuse power when they were given that. Not all, but most. And he has even said those that came before him did, and he didn't. He didn't do that. And we read there in verse 16 why he didn't. It says because of the fear of God, verse 15. Because of the fear of God, 
yet again reminded that the fear of the Lord is, is a powerful force of personal self-accountability. If we fear the Lord, that'll serve us well in our decision-making processes in the secret and the quiet place and in the public place. The fear of the Lord holds us accountable to ourselves. If we fear the Lord, we'll be governed by the Lord. We don't need a lot of governance from men or women over us because there's no governance that's better than the governance of the Lord, fearing the Lord and his word guiding and governing your heart and your life, my heart and my life, our lives. We fear the Lord. When he reproved the leaders in the previous text we just read, it says that he, he said, do you not, should you not walk in the fear of our God? See, they did not fear the Lord, and they took advantage of other people because they had no fear of the Lord. They didn't fear the Lord's holiness, his character, his presence, his person, his kingdom, and the day of the Lord. They didn't fear it. Their faith didn't. Re Real faith fears the Lord in a good way. Our Father, our heaven, hallowed be your name. We need to see Jesus holding the scroll of title deed of earth in Revelation 5. We need to see the Father in full glory in Revelation 4, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Like, we need to see the day of the Lord. We need to see, like, Jesus coming for us and use that as a restraint against evil and taking advantage of other people. See, how he could have exploited those financial opportunities, they just stand out to us. He could have exploited for real wealth. The real wealth was gold and silver, right? He said they took silver coins. They took food. What do you really need in a crisis? Food. What's the, what's the commodity of every culture in human history? Gold and silver. Precious metals, always. Hey, Soon as Israel gets attacked, gold's, gold goes up 100 an ounce in one day. Human beings flee to things in crisis that they trust. And two things people always trust in human history is food and precious metals. Never fails. There's good gold in Genesis 2, and there's streets of gold in Revelation 22. And that's just the way it is. There's something in us. I tell people gold's the currency of eternity. Why, why do the Chinese and Russia, everyone, all these countries want gold right now? It's, you can't really do anything with gold, but somehow we have this equation of value to it in the human experience. Nehemiah, he could have taxed the people and taken gold, long-term wealth gold, coins, precious metal coins. He could have taken them for himself and for the people he loved, his posse, his family, his extended friends and family, but he didn't. He could have taken all that food, but he didn't. And... The one thing that we, we all learned something about the day we played Monopoly as a kid is he could have taken land like those he disrebuked. He had land opportunities. He, he said, I did not buy any land. If you, if you understand finances and you understand a good financial investment with real estate, you hate to lose that opportunity if you can dig in it. Because real estate's the other thing of great wealth. Almost all wars are fought over land, like the one we're watching right now or your right to exist in that land. Man, you got to commend Nehemiah, right? Don't you just admire Nehemiah when you read this? He had the power. We think how many times we keep find, finding these conspiracies and these things being revealed in our nation in the last 30 years where these people use power to, this way corruptly to make millions from political corruption. And then here's Nehemiah, he's like, he could have taken the gold. He could have taken the food. He could have taken the land. He could have set up an empire, but he didn't. Not even one gold coin, not even one teeny, weeny, beeny condo in Laguna Beach, nothing. He didn't take anything. 
Not even one food gift card from Vaughn's. He didn't take anything. Which brings us to a really key thought before we move on from here. The value of equity through sacrifice. Because gold is equity, real estate's equity, and food is certainly equity, a food supply. But the equity of thinking of others and being above reproach in how you serve them and lead them is a much more powerful equity of the spiritual and the eternal than these physical equities that get left behind when you step into eternity. All that wealth, gold, food, and land gets left behind. But when you fear the Lord... And the equity you have is you're above reproach when people say, well, he's got an agenda. No, you don't. You didn't buy the land. You didn't take the gold and you didn't take the food. And he certainly respected women. I'm quite certain of that. You see, there's a power. There's a power when you can take, but instead you give. There's a power when instead of expecting to serve, you serve. Jesus taught us that power. The greatest in the kingdom of God is a servant of all. And he showed us that. That's what Nehemiah is like a type of Christ here. He didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He served them. He didn't expect them. He saw the burdens they were under. He didn't add to their burdens. He said, I saw their great burden. Lord, remember me. Remember me on the day of the Lord, Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord, and he was, he had the power of the ultimate equity that he served people unconditionally No one, when he prayed with anyone, when he exhorted anyone, when he served anybody, when he gave them counsel, no one ever had to think, is there a skewed agenda here? Is Nehemiah, because we know what it's like when you're not sure if someone has an agenda. You never got in a conversation with Nehemiah where you thought, is he trying to wiggle my, is he trying to finagle my land from me? Is he trying to take my five sheep in the backyard from me? Is he trying to take the silver coins in my pocket here from me? The answer would always be emphatically, no. Isn't that beautiful? Paul the Apostle was a lot like that in ministry. Because he, he just didn't want that. He said the labor is worthy of the wages. But he said, you know, in some cases, it's just better not to have anything that you've taken. So people know without a doubt, there's no skewed agenda. If you've ever been in that situation where you've not received benefits to serve people, you know what I'm talking about. It just... It keeps you above reproach, too. If people, you know, it really does. If people come against you like, hey, I'm here. I'm, it's my time and energy for you. So if you think you can do a better job, then okay. We do that with coaching more than once with a couple different countries. Hey, fair enough. Garna suerte. It, it's just a, it gives you leverage. So if you ever feel like the Lord's saying, do that and don't do it with financial compensation, it's probably because he wants to give you a, 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 a leverage in that ministry with that person so they know you truly love them and care about them and you have no agenda to take from them. Because most people are takers. And when you can be like Nehemiah here, it's clear you're a giver and you sincerely care about other people. And it's nice. In taking care of my dad, I've never received a salary for eight years now. And I, I made a mistake financially a couple months ago that it cost my dad's estate a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And I said, you know, I'm pretty down on myself. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty down that I misread this situation. And, you know, we lost some deposits and stuff. But, you know, my intentions were good. I did the best I could. And I'll tell you something. When, when you cost someone a little bit of money, it's nice to know that you never charge them any for the last eight years. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm like... 
hey, you know, obviously I never had an agenda here. and Because it's hard when you feel like you fail with a stewardship or something. But if you didn't, if you didn't have an agenda, you, just, you feel better. I'm telling you, you sleep better. And in this situation, it's not every situation, because obviously you need to avoid debt and borrowing money to pay your taxes to the king, right? You understand the balance. But still, in this situation, you can see the value and the witness of Nehemiah, and it's, it's good. So he gets that all straightened out. He's above reproach. He's a leader everyone respects. And then we read this now. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, it happened when Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, because there's lots of them, uh, heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there was no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Samballot and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave and, and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sembalat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, and it is written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent him, saying, No such things are you, you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hand will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, God, strengthen my hands. Those three verses, you know, he, he says, No, nah, that's not true. Not a lengthy apologetic, just like, no, that's not true. And then a commentary to us, for they were trying to make us afraid, and then his prayer to the Lord. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. Help me stay on point. Verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God, the temple, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you indeed at night, and will come to kill you. And I said, should a, should a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. But he pronounced his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sembalat, according to their works and their prophetesses, their prophetess, Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets, who would have made me afraid? You just got to love in this book how Nehemiah just throws out these prayers. I love being around people like that. You know, you're just, you're, you're talking all of a sudden like, hey, let's pray right now. Yeah. Court's kind of like that. You know, court sometimes will do that. Brian McDaniel, who just got back from Israel yesterday, is like that all the time. Like, we're talking like, hey, Brian's like, yeah, and you know what I mean? He's like, hey, let's pray right now. You know, and, and, and I, oh, okay. You know, it's, right. it's that consciousness of God that he's right there with you. You start the day with the Lord like that, and you live the day with the Lord like that, and you end the day with the Lord like that. You fall asleep like, oh, Lord, you know, solved all the problems in the world. And you just fall asleep, and it's good. You gave it to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. Isn't chapter 6 just agitating? It's, like, so annoying. It's such an annoying chapter. I just, like, ugh. It's like I read this, it's like, oh, you know, conspiracies, hired people, and just crafty, evil people doing evil, crafty people stuff. 
the evil that we're creating God's image, but it's amazing how evil we can be when we're given over to darkness and Satan. It's, it's, it's unbelievable sometimes. It should never surprise us, the evil and depravity of men. But still, I suppose in a spirit of innocence, we would still want to be surprised by evil and not be that numb to it. But ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And Nehemiah, this is all designed, there's satanic elements to this, and it's all designed to stop them. It's distraction, it's slander, and then it's plans of entrapment. So the distraction, like, hey, come down here to the plane of oh no, isn't that the classic? Like, oh no, don't go down there. You might come to the plane of oh no. It's like, no, no, don't do it. You know, and it's just distraction. And you know, the devil's relentless with distraction. You think the third, you know, three with the Lord, with Jesus prayed three times at the cup pass, Paul prayed three times to be healed. You know, and so three is a pretty good number for us. But the devil, he doesn't stop at three when it comes to trying to destroy you and me. He'll just keep going. He'll just keep going. Letter number four, letter number five. Oh, it's this. Hath God really said? Or how about Satan with Jesus? Hey, he'll give his angels charge over you. Gosh, the devil's relentless, isn't he? Distraction, 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 distraction. To distract from the work. Then the false accusations, because false accusations get you upset. Uh, Jeff Anderson and I were talking about false accusations before service, you know, and it's like, boy, nothing, nothing hurts like a false accusation, especially when it's 100% false accusation. Kind of like a half, like, well, okay, I mishandled that, but that's not the whole truth. This is the whole truth of the story. Though, you know, you still feel like, okay, I am a little bit at fault here. I could have handled that better. But a full, straight-up false accusation is just like, oh, it's so defiling. Sam Cooke was recently falsely accused of something. And he was telling me just how upset he was. I'm like, Sam Cooke, like, I can't even imagine someone making an accusation like that about you. And he had to defend himself. And it's like, I was like, wow. I could see him making an accusation about me, but not you. You know, because Sam Coca's just like, you know, he's a Sam Coca, right? Pastor Sam, like, like man, like he's the ultimate rule follower, right? Like, it's just Sam, like, I'm like, that is the most false, that's the most frivolous false accusation you could, you could, you could say about him. They said he said something he didn't say, and it's just not true. A profanity. Now, I had a false accusation. When I was on the radio the first year at K-Wave, 2000 on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, we were doing the live broadcast on Thursday nights, and all of a sudden, one night, I wasn't on the radio. And I was like, dude, you weren't on the radio. I was like, what? And, and uh, I told Brian, you know, I went and told Brian Broderson, go tell your big brother, you know. And so, and he goes, he goes to Pastor Chuck, and Pastor Chuck said, well, you know, Joey said a cuss word on the radio last week. I was 100% above reproach. Because the word I was accused of saying, I don't use in my vocabulary. And I was like, there is no way. I, maybe God consume me with fire from heaven if I ever said that word. So it was nice, you know, to be above reproach. But still, like, you want to, where are the accusers? I want to, hey, I want to see who went into Pastor Chuck's office and said, Joey said this on the radio. And who stirred this up? What kind of malice and malicious, boy, I was worked up. Brian's like, easy there, Skipper, easy. I was like, is this how things work around here, man? Come on, man. I'll show you how we do it in the surfing world right now. You know, like, <laughs> you know, we didn't come this far to get pulled from K-Wave because, but, ah, you know, just, 
Oh, you like. This is the way it goes, right? You've, you've all had false accusations. They hurt. They're designed to hurt. Think how it was for Paul, the apostle, who loved the Lord, knew the law of God better than anyone, to be accused of coming against God's law. When they attacked him, the whole frenzy in Jerusalem, like, he, he teaches against the law. He, he did not teach against the law. Can you imagine how much that hurt Paul? Man, that would have really hurt. False accusations are designed to really hurt. And they're designed to get you, get you off your game. And then the ensnarement, this trap like, okay, first of all, only the priests go in the temple, right? Nehemiah is not a priest. No matter how scared you are, you don't run in the temple. Remember Uriah get turned into leprosy, right? Like, that's just not for you to do. But when you panic, you're like, you don't think straight. And they're, they're trying to get him to do something that's out of his character and against the word of God so they can accuse him publicly and discredit him to the people of God. So had he run into the temple and done this to me, like, hey, look, Nehemiah thinks he's a, he really does think he's a king like Uriah. He thinks he can just go in the temple and be a priest too. Like they were setting him up. Man, sometimes you get set up. It's the worst. That's why you learn to be above reproach and not make foolish mistakes. You know, Pastor Chuck tells the story, right, where the guy said, I want to meet with you and talk with you. And Kay's like, don't meet with that man. He's going to threaten you with a gun. Don't meet with that man. He's going to threaten you with a gun. All Kay and all, you know. And uh, Chuck goes out to the car, meet with the guy. First thing he does is pull a gun out and point it straight at Chuck's head. It was a trap. And Chuck passed that test. But you wonder, was it Kay's prayers or, or, or the Lord's mercy or all the above that he wasn't shot right there? Because, you know, a lot of people shoot the pastor in marriage disputes, if you didn't know that. They blame the pastors, as the people do. Or the rabbi. Or even the imam. Or the priest. Religious leaders, when there's divorce and marriage, it goes really bad. Sometimes people, when they're so enraged, before they kill their spouse, or instead of killing their spouse, they kill the religious leader. That guy was in marriage estrangement, and he pointed a gun at Chuck's head. It was a trap. When I first heard that story, I thought, well, that makes me feel better, because if Pastor Chuck can fall into that trap, I suppose we can all fall into traps, because I feel pretty stupid for some of the ones I fall into. So we'll just have to trust the Lord to deliver us. But better yet, we need to learn from it so we don't fall into that trap. The traps, the distraction, the false accusation, and the trap were all designed to do one thing, stop the work. To get the focus off what we're called to do, get out of our lane, knock us out of our lane, and knock us off our game, and get us to stop the work. That's why it's so important, worship generation, body of Christ, that when you wake up in the morning, you know what you're called to do. And you do it. Unless the Lord shows you otherwise. Because when you can what you don't know, you'll fall back on what you do know. And if you know what your purpose is and you know what your priorities are that day, you stick to the plan. And you, you can adjust if the Lord leads you that way because a spirit-filled woman will adjust, as will a spirit-filled man. But you, if you know what you're called to do, you, you, but if you're just wishy-washy and double-minded and like just reacting and responding, you just kill time instead of redeem time, you can just get thrown all over the place. You need to know, like Paul said, who you believed in, you're persuaded, able to keep that what you've committed to him until that day, and you know it's forward, onward, up with the Lord, and there's things to do. 
There's work to be done. We're his workmanship, and there's a great work. I'm doing a great work. I can't leave it. Oh, you think it's a great work? Anything God's calling you to do and me to do, it's a great work. That's why we're alive. So do the work and don't let false accusations, traps, and ensnarement, and all these things work against us. We need, we need to, well, I love what he said here in verse 3. Why should, I, should the work cease and leave and go down to you? If you just react like to try and put out every brush fire, or that's not true, I would never say I'm going to be the king. You're just reacting. You need to respond. Hey, that's in your own head. And we know why you're doing this. And Lord, it's yours. Deal with it. See, he stayed on purpose. Why should the work cease and leave go down to you? So this person, this attack is going to usurp the work of God in your life. Don't let that happen. Stay on point. Stay on target. And then he said in verse 11, who am I that when I go in the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Why did he not go in? Because he already had established convictions of his character that he wouldn't cross that line. See, when the devil's trying to distract the work and get you to cross the line and get out of your normal flow of how you think and react and respond, it's a test of your character. But if your character's already established that you would never cross that line, you won't cross that line. You would never cross that line. Like Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon, if you purpose in your heart that you're not going to defile yourself that way, you won't cross that line no matter how it suddenly comes upon you. You see, character and clarity are a firm foundation to stay on point with the Lord and what he's called you to do against the false accusations and distractions and the ensnarements because the devil's working all three in our lives. So character, clarity. Hey, I don't know what these guys mean by going on the temple, but I know one thing. I'm never setting foot in the temple because I'm not a Levite, and that's that. Those firm convictions, they go a long way. Now we're almost done. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. And it happened when all of our enemies heard of it, that all the nations around us saw these things, that they were disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, his son Jehohonan had married the daughter of, man, this is like a soap opera. Uh, Meshlam, the son of Barakiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. It just, it just wasn't going to end, was it? I mean, let's be honest. When you have people like this and events like this, you just want to quit your job and start over. You just want to sell your house and just move to a new neighborhood. But you find out, People like this are everywhere. And apart from not wanting to be this person, you can't let this person, these type of people, stop you from keep going forward. The wall was done. It's a beautiful thing. He did it in 52 days, what people couldn't do for a, a, a hundred years in a century. But in the end, these people are still there. They're just, they're just, man, as long as they're alive, they're going to be doing this. They're going to be trying to wreck you, wreck your calling. Use some of your power to take advantage of other people because in the end of the book, that's what happens. See, you neglect power so they can seize your power. These people, they, they, they're just like that. But life is so short. So I just remind us all, life is a vapor. Sambal and Tobiah, they just exist for a vapor. But you making good decisions with character and clarity with the Lord, staying on point to do the job, finish the job entrusted to you, 
man, that's for all eternity. That's fruit for eternity. And like I said last week, Sanballat and Tobiah don't go to where we're going. And it's too bad for them. And, you know, it's too bad for them. But we're self-determined. If they choose to be this way, and they can only think small-minded for temporal and stealing and taking. But we want to have a broad, big mind with the kingdom, big God, little problems. God's on the throne. He's got this. All things are working together for good. We're givers, not takers. And that's who we are. And by the way, once you finish a great work like this, what comes next? Another great work. Because we go from glory to glory. The success of finished work is just an upward spiral of one accomplishment after another. With your faith growing, your fruit growing, and getting closer to glory. And more like Jesus. Yes, and amen.